Um, <clears throat> but here, Richard, thank you so much for uh, joining me again. Um, for everybody, My pleasure, by the way. Oh yeah, for everyone who's watching, uh, after the first two conversations we had about embracing the void, uh, Richard and I were chatting about its connections with his memoir that he brought out at around the same time. And so we thought it would be really interesting to have a conversation that would bring in um, that book as well. Uh, so that's the plan for today. Um, so yeah, Richard, do you want to actually start by telling us a little bit about the memoir? Uh, and writing yeah. that on the site, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, that's that's the perfect place to start. Um, <clears throat> and starting uh, seventeen years ago um, was when my son, just in despair over a really intractable drug addiction, um, he'd gone through various drugs, but ended up on heroin. Um, time was, I don't know if it's still the case, but Baltimore, Maryland, where I've lived for the last 35 years and where he grew up, it was the heroin capital of the United States, um, main point of entry for New York and other places, um, but really enormous heroin problem in the city of Baltimore. They estimated that one in 11 people was an addict um, back in the 80s and 90s. And, and uh when my son shot himself in in 2006 in despair over this situation um leaving behind his 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 wife and three and a half year old little boy um i was just i had to kind of cope with it somehow it was um, not a complete surprise we were afraid of his killing himself we knew that he owned a gun and that um had made noises about being in such despair that he might use it on himself but when it's happened, it still hits you with a kind of physical force, you know. And I fairly quickly, uh, within the year of his death, started writing about it in a kind of desperation, I have to say. I, I had to, to find a way, or if I could, to just understand what happened. So the drive to know something, uh, how to interpret this whole uh, turn of events, and the loss of the thing I, I would have given my own life to save was just a manic, a manic, you know, uh, project of trying desperately to turn over all the details and tell myself the history again and again so that I might be able to understand it. And the thing that really surprised me about that memoir, um, returning to it over and over again over a period of about 15 years, rewriting it you know from the ground up with the same aim just trying to, to to digest this event understand what happened what astonished me was that my desperate try attempt to know which meant going into analysis four days a week for three and a half years and um really just going to extraordinary lengths to try to understand i found that the thing that really issued you know from this whole drama was the realization i can't know of cr the crucial stuff not just why my son chose to pull the trigger but even the history of our very close relationship even 
the things about him I loved the most. Um, I realized after a tremendous amount of time and labor and, and anguish, I realized the essential things have significant dimensions at the very least that I simply don't and can't claim to understand. And then the other surprising thing, the thing that really kind of ambushed me and um, was both kind of a shock, but also a enormously, um, what shall I say, opening and enabling and healing thing, was I began to realize that not knowing, which I had thought was the worst torment possible, was actually um, in some curious way reassuring and grounding. Uh, so the precise opposite of what I had thought it might be. I thought realizing the inability to know anything would be torture. But I began to realize how not only did I not know key things about his death and about his decline, his 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 addiction, his his worries and and pains at the end of his life, but also I I thought back on our relationship and I thought the things that I loved the most about it. I don't really understand. Uh, and I began to realize that love is in part always beyond our full comprehension, that we relate to people, but we don't totally understand them ever, even the people we're closest to. And that that lesson uh, was 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 both, as I say, unbelievably surprising, totally unexpected, but also, um, by the way, especially for a philosophy professor, it was, it was really shocking and kind of upending. But it also uh, not just surprised me, but I found it um, a really liberating truth. Uh, I never thought in a million years that I would think that declaring to myself my own ignorance and then saying to myself, this is margin of ignorance cannot be totally taken away that was just astonishing to me there's a there's something i remember shizek said in a lecture um one of my favorite lectures of his which was in calvin college uh and he did this in this very conservative christian college he did this uh, lecture on christianity but he said at one point that <laughs> often we want a reason for something, uh, even if it's God hates us, if we say we have cancer or something like that, we might say, God wants this, God has a purpose, or even maybe I've sinned against God, that we we prefer an answer, to, even if it's a painful answer, to no answer at all. And something you mentioned to me at one stage was in relation to guilt, but it was um, that sometimes you wanted an answer, even if the answer was, was this my fault? that that was actually even though that's an incredibly painful answer it was somehow less painful and initially than being able to say well maybe there just there there isn't a, an answer that's a hugely helpful comment to me peter because um that sets up the next for me, the next kind of step in explaining this whole uh, journey that I've been on surviving my son's death. Um, 
because of course my initial impulse was to blame myself and say i somehow really failed this boy um which was of course excruciating because i i i so dearly loved him not just feeling responsible as his parent but just loving the person he was he was an extraordinarily imaginative and inventive and tender and open just a lovely human being um and and i i just felt what did i do wrong i i must have done something wrong and um i was writing in part to try to to express it was a it was my, the memoir started out almost more confessional than anything else and after working with it for years and kind of returning to it almost like i i didn't know why i would return to it i felt like i i was unsatisfied with it but i didn't know why and i would spend months with it um like a kind of you know monk in a monastery kind of holding myself up in a room with this text and and rereading and rewriting it then this amazing thing happened where i i began to realize that my guilt my first impulse, which was to just load the guilt on myself, was actually not, it was not, it wasn't just not being fair to myself. It was, it was trying actually to say, I do know what happened and I'm responsible. And, and that was more, that was easier to take than not knowing. In other words, guilt I, I realized toward toward the end of this period of 15 years, I, I it kind of breakthrough was I, I in a sense, I I I I've been loading this guilt on myself artificially, as if to say, at least I can know this. At least I can and shoulder the responsibility, and then I can explain it all to myself uh, at the cost of being the, the villain in the whole story. And I realized this is a fake story. Um, I'm trying to relate it to something I can claim to know, which is my own culpability. And finally I said, no, I'm making this up. I I have to face the, the infinitely challenging, painful thing that I don't understand what happened. I'll never understand. And no, it wasn't just my fault. I don't know what happened. And initially that was very painful too, as it felt like getting thrown off the ship in the middle of the ocean and, and, and with no other ship in sight, you know. But more and more I became, I, I had a new feeling about this, um, almost being condemned to unknowing. I began to be feel liberated by it. And I felt like, Yes, of course. I uh, not only do I not know the secret of his death, I I never really knew the secret of his person when he was alive. Um, and as I say, the the things that I loved the most about him, I mean, how he he was fascinated by certain things. Um, he had this this penchant. I mentioned in the memoir about this penchant for for little rocks. He would find these little smooth stones or little pieces of driftwood. He was fascinated. His apartment was filled with them. Um, 
or he would ever since he was a little little boy three or four years old he was fascinated with clouds he would he would grab my hand and as if i wasn't paying attention and he would say dad dad look at the look at the clouds and i would look up and think oh how charming you know he's really alert to these these aesthetic things and but i don't know why he did that i mean i don't know what it really meant to him even the sweetest things about this boy i they came from origins and sources that i did not know and could not know and it suddenly was very liberating to me i felt like wow um what if the things that we most treasure in life are precisely the things that are deeply rooted in things we do not and cannot fully understand and it shifted my entire understanding of love and and caring and even um even paradoxically enough knowing when we say i know someone i realize now what we're saying is yes we know certain things but we also accept in the bargain that we don't know completely and those wonderful things that we adore in someone we love are also rooted in things we do not and cannot fathom and that was paradoxically very liberating as well as very um, enlightening because so then like there's a sense in which we are meaning creating beings like we want to have a reason or a meaning or an understanding or know the other know our place and um and even the guilt can be a defense against opening ourselves up to a radical right. unknowing exactly exactly and 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 finally what i realized was that my whole drive to know was very intertwined with a drive to control to get control to get some sense of a narrative which would be yes like a kind of life jacket in 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 water way over my head and uh i began to realize this is self-serving this is me trying to get in control and i i realized actually it was a it, i was 51 years old when he died i i didn't know this lesson at 51 that the most precious things in our lives are and will always be things we do not completely understand and yeah. uh grasping that embracing it even now the title of that other book embracing it and and even protecting and cherishing it so you don't fill in the blank you accept and you even try to feel more acutely the things that you appreciate in the other but you do not understand totally that's key and if and if you if you haven't ever experienced it or i think we've all experienced it if you've never really accepted it uh and cherished it you have as i did in my frenzy to know after my son's death what happened you're in danger of of kind of missing out actually on your own life and your own relationships i'm thinking um there's a philosopher i always liked gabriel marcel when i was uh, undergraduate and um i remember he said one stage because his job i think was during the first world war 
was uh, to tell parents that their children had died in the war. Yes. And at one stage, you know, he, he obviously is a big Heideggerian, so it'd be the supposed to be Second World War. Actually, I can't, I'm terrible at the ages, I'm not sure where, what age Marcel would have been in the First World War. Um, but he said that, you know, coming to terms, the Heideggerian notion of coming to terms with our own finitude, our own death, can, can be traumatic or can be opening. However, Marcel says we can also come to terms with that, we can also ignore it. Uh, but what we can't ignore, what really breaks us open and potentially can destroy us is not our own death, but the death of those we love. The, the loss of those we love is, is what throws us horribly, but into these questions um, in a way that nothing else can, even though it maybe is always bubbling within us and loss and finishes. It's the loss of those we love. And, uh, you know, so you went through the most extreme experience of that that you know you can probably come to terms with your own finitude your own death and not not maybe be that concerned by it but you know through reading the memoir obviously is this this opens up these questions in the most deeply existential and most deeply painful ways and i guess it either destroys you or you find a way i don't know i don't know because it could so easily destroy mm. going through that experience. Yeah, and Marcel and um, the other existentialist philosophers, uh, Heidegger, maybe for me, prime among them, the one I really who really got me hooked on philosophy was reading Heidegger's Being in Time as an undergraduate. But yeah, Heidegger's uh, insistence that we we are being toward death. And I remember reading it as an undergraduate and thinking, I don't really know what he's talking about. Um, and I would have to say that in the wake of my son's death, I became aware, I think for the first time, or at least I arrived at an interpretation of that Heideggerian idea that, that we, in our existential reality, we are being in our very core lives, we're being toward death. What does that mean? I I realized in writing this memoir and sort of surviving my son's death, I realized what we're really being towards is what we do not know. And death is kind of the ultimate riddle, but the ultimate confrontation with a kind of an absolute wall of unknowing. Yeah. Um, which maybe, they helped me a lot in <laughs> re uh, retrieving and understanding maybe for the first time what Heidegger was really about. Yeah. And then, you know, something you said last week, um, which I find very interesting, you made a distinction between, you know, Sartre and Lacan. Uh, and you do that in, in your book, Embracing the Void, and you say, you know, maybe for Sartre, the question of our own abyss and our own uh, unknowing our own freedom is where anxiety comes from and where and what we have to kind of embrace. Uh, whereas for Lacan, it, it's primarily actually the unknowing of the other is is the the, the anxiety producing thing. And that's that's our first experience is not that I'm unknown to myself, but it's the unknowing in the other. But in the same way, and when I think about death, it's like it's it's maybe not my own death that is the most destabilizing thing, it's the death of the other. It's that that's the most 
uh, kind of powerful experience and painful experience um, and the one that can that opens up these questions um, which kind of you've explored in the memoir Alan embracing the void I mean this it's kind of fundamentally about being destabilized by a radical unknowing and and almost a refusal to put defenses up against that yes exactly exactly and and once you begin to get accustomed a little to this shift of perspective where love is as much if not more rooted in what we don't know about the other charmed might one might even say by the things that we don't fully understand we can love them without understanding where they come from or what they really mean for the person we love uh this 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 i think is a way of describing real openness to the other that you are willing to embrace <laughs> coming back to that word i guess um, a lot embrace even and maybe especially what in the other person we do not understand um and to go back to the heideggerian reference i would say Heidegger Heidegger thinks of human being as a kind of he he thinks a kind of clearing like the clearing of the forest where you suddenly are coming through the the density of trees and undergrowth and you come to a clearing where suddenly the sun is able to penetrate the forest floor and and as you enter the clearing of course you become aware now that of the question well what might appear maybe a deer will walk into the far end of the clearing or perhaps a fox or a or perhaps a bird will 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 swoop down and touch ground in the middle of this clearing. Maybe something will appear. And Heidegger basically says that's what human being is: is this clearing in which things appear. But the clearing, of course, also implies that you're open to what you can't predict arriving in the clearing. And I think that's a wonderful way of talking about unknowing, that unknowing at the very heart of what we call respect, and I would argue what we call love, is an acceptance of unknowing. It's an acceptance of being open to something you don't predict that comes from the other or comes from life itself. And so what... Can you, you know, the connection between the loss of your son and the coming to terms with the unknowing, um, you know, because how, how do we connect those? Because it may, like the book, the name of the, the book, Embracing the Void, is this idea that that we have to embrace, find some way of uh, acknowledging a type of void, a type of lack. Um, and of course, whenever the someone we love, we lose someone there's a sense in which that creates a void and a lack mm -hmm. um so yeah i'm just trying to trying to tease out the connection between you know you kind of mourning that loss and coming to accept the unknowing and are we talking about the same kind of thing are these uh, yeah, I, you know, what comes to my mind when you say that, and by the way, Peter, as usual, you, you have such a gift for asking the right questions. I, I so respect this, um, like you, you 
somehow intuitively know how to pick up the thread. Um, you set me up here for a great thing that I didn't think about talking about, but now that you put that question, I, you know, as I say, I entered the project of writing these drafts of this memoir as a kind of way to explain to myself, if I could, what just happened. Um, how did we come to this? How did we lose that boy? And and the funny thing is now coming to the realization that I cannot answer that question. And that maybe actually it's a necessary and even a good thing that I cannot fill in that blank. Um, and that I have to live with this suspended knowing, this impossibility of knowing everything. Um, that became a very liberating lesson to me, not without some real pain and struggle accepting it, but but once I did, I felt grateful for it. And weirdly enough, I felt grateful. I felt it was like a gift from Oliver to me that his death took away the blinkers of my eyes and 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 opened them to this whole problematic this problematic of, of of accepting what we cannot explain to ourselves. Um, and I felt a sense of death. I mean, I felt, uh, in a sense, in a weird sense, I felt a kind of guilt all over again, like he had delivered a great gift in dying because it forced me to think through a lot of things that I just hadn't visited at all. I hadn't even dreamt that the problems were there. And and ending up with this kind of conclusion, this very paradoxical conclusion, exactly about embracing what we don't know, embracing the void in that sense, yeah. is a great gift. I, I realized that in his suicide, I had really been given something, um, for which I, to, the, to this day, am really grateful, in a very mixed, kind of painful way. Yeah. It's interesting to me how thinking back to when I first started, when I was, um, it was in my early 20s, maybe mid 20s. And uh, I started with some friends, this group called Icon in Belfast. Mm -hmm. And we met in a bar called the Menagerie. And uh, it was, you know, we had music and liturgy and poetry or whatever. But the, the prime idea at the time was to create and what I'll call now a non-hermeneutic space. So we where people came and a lot of the poetry and the spoken word and the music was designed to help people look at things that have happened that maybe divorce and maybe estrangement from family, uh, maybe loss of job, uh, uh, illness of someone they love, that there was a space for those things to be felt with no interpretation given. In fact, the whole point of the liturgy was to uh, refuse interpretation, but to somehow hold the space. And that was actually the, the initial thing of, is it possible to have a kind of a religious expression that instead of religion giving you a hermeneutic answer, giving you a reason, which is very, um, like on a very superficial level, very therapeutic. In the short term, you have an answer for something and you say, even if it's a bad answer, it's still an answer. But what would it be to have a type of religious and inverted commas experience in which it's precisely 
keeping the question open and providing a kind of uh, art and music that would simply acknowledge without explanation. Mm. Uh, because in, in terms of your book, Embracing the Void, as well, you, you touch on, you know, you touch on the, the, the how religion is symptomatic, it kind of like, and it creates a compromise formation, and it can, you know, protect us from the unknowing at the same time as maybe helping us touch it or experience it in some way. But, uh, but you know, religion at its worst, I guess, is is always there to, is is the friend who tells you the reason why the person broke up with you the reason why you lost the job gives you the reason <laughs> um uh and that's the temptation that that we should maybe resist i always think when lacan once said um you know the was it the the, the temptation that the analyst has to resist is giving the analyze and what they want which is an explanation yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 which is giving an answer yeah. Giving an answer. And, yeah. yeah. And you feel it. You feel it whenever a friend is going through something. You feel almost you feel the thing that I have to give some answer, some some pat on the back, an explanation of of it's all going to be okay. But somehow yeah. that's actually more important to resist that. Yes, exactly. As though as though the, the patient, the analyzand, the fundamental question they have for the analyst is 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 basically tell me what to do tell me what's going on here T tell me the give me the secret and and the analyst has to at that moment more than ever practice the famous silence mm. um in effect one has to say without even going so far as to articulate it i can't tell you i don't know um yeah. that's exactly right but i yeah it was the the i would not have written i wouldn't even have dreamed i think this book um that now i feel like the, that's the best thing i I've, I've ever read anything worth reading i think it's that book embracing the void i wouldn't have not not only would i not have written it i wouldn't have known step one to write it without the lesson i learned from oliver's death um which is i take it that you know that that whatever you think the divine is, whatever your conception of God or lack of it, just to talk about God is, is to pose a question, inevitably. Even if we have faith in God, we, I think, don't understand the basis of that faith, and we don't understand the real interlocutor who's on the other side of our prayerful appeal. Even when we say, say a prayer, or we posture ourselves in a position, a kind of uh, attitude of prayer. It seems to me now obvious. Um, we position ourselves towards something we fundamentally do not fully grasp. If only because we there's an answer to our prayer, which we don't yet, we haven't heard and can't anticipate. We can we can suppose that we know what we want to hear, but the whole posture of prayer. We don't even know when 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 we make some prayerful petition, we're not even sure that it's heard or where or how it's heard, and let alone what answer might be forthcoming. And um, it, it just struck me very, very powerfully in a, a way that was revolutionizing for me, that this whole openness to what we don't know 
what if that's the key to the entire religious posture? It's the posture in which we 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 keep ourselves open to this lack of knowing, um, this void. There was um there was a there's a small Russian sect. I don't know if they still exist, but um in the Orthodox Church, they always have lots of icons. Um, but this small Russian sect, uh, they didn't have icons, but they would cut a hole in the wall, I think to the east, <laughs> and they would pray to the gap itself. <laughs> the gap was <laughs> their icon. I love it. I love it. I mean, and how often is it the case that someone who is either in psychoanalysis or some other psychological treatment or in a desperate situation in life um, where you have lost someone you love or maybe you are you've lost your fortune, you've lost your job, you've lost your health. I don't know you, but yeah, you, you, everything positions you in relation to a kind of plea you want to make to sort of make it whole again. Give me, give me back what I've lost. And um, uh, yeah. So you, you face this kind of hole uh, that needs to be filled and um as if that's a primary kind of primal uh, religious act that we find ourselves in front of the vacancy of the, the whole. And the yeah. question, the question for me, and, you know, and I think there are examples of this, but how possible is it to have a community um, that doesn't fill that hole that where you know the past pascal talks about the god-shaped hole but just to radicalize the god-shaped hole to say well what if god is the hole itself so not yes. god is that god creates a gap which we need to fill but god is a signifier of the gap itself or god is not an object that we do not know god is the signifier for the not knowing itself and that slight shift um which i you know i think fits with the i Bonhoeffer's notion of religionless Christianity, but is that religionless Christianity could be a definition for a type of uh, just say changing the signifier slightly and say God is not the object that we do not know. God is the name we give to this radical unknowing. And yeah, how can we have a space to keep that radical, to keep us sensitive to that radical unknowing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so the, the, the problem becomes uh the religious posture is is this is this comporting oneself, as Heidegger would say, toward the open clearing and and waiting for what will appear. And that, of course, to even adopt that posture requires that you give up your demand for the answer. In other words, you think, okay, I need this. I, I, I'm praying for this. If you please just give me this. That's a perversion, as I now understand it. That's a perversion of the whole posture of prayer. If you if you pray for some specific thing, you're you're kind of missing the point of prayer as a pure opening of yourself toward something you don't even know how to name yet. What you need, you can't actually even conceive. That strikes me as an essential teaching in almost all the religions in the world that you that you're not you don't even know what to ask for, actually. Which by the way, I can 
I can imagine someone coming to this really profound conclusion without religion. I mean, it seems to me, if you just think about it long enough, you realize, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't really know this game, this game of life. I didn't arrive and get handed the rule book, but we don't know what will make us happy ultimately. We have to wait for it and hope we recognize it when it comes. But to be open, be open to it, strange though it may be and unrecognizable initially though it may be, that's the game. That's that's what it means to be human. Yeah. My my intuition in terms of religion and Christianity is that um kind of, you know, that after Hegel, um the church gave away so much of this insight into philosophy. So existentialism and psychoanalysis and all these other areas, I think, do so much more justice to these ideas than mm -hmm. confessional religion. Um, but confessional religion has liturgy. It has a structure of a weekly, you come, you, you know, you go, you listen to music, you speak, you hear a sermon, you hear parables. Um, and so I kind of, my whole thing is like, how do we bring these psychoanalytic and existential insights that I actually think largely derive from the apophatic tradition and come out of a lot of the religious tradition, but somehow the treasures have been taken away. What, what would it look like to bring them back? Um, that's, that's kind of, again, kind of my interest is I, I read lots of good academic books about this stuff and I go, yeah, but what does it look like? Uh, for a group of people wanting to do life together and uh, yeah. yeah and so I wanted that's why I'm so interested in Lacan is that I kind of go well I kind of want to I think there's a liturgy that can be that can be forged uh, through these ideas and it's not something foreign to religion these ideas are kind of in there even the I am that I am you know the unnameable signifier of God all of this stuff you know it's, it's in there it's a self-divided God and my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's it's all there. Um, but religion, sadly, has become the place that defends us against on a radical unknowing and a radical uncertainty. And yeah. so much so that I think the reaction formation is um, apologetics, uh, where people get so into apologetics, potentially maybe because they enjoy it, but sometimes maybe not because they're full of certainty, but precisely because they're full of uncertainty. Why else would you buy so many books on apologetics? And um, I was on a radio station once with an ap apologetics guy and he had a show four days a week and he written books on apologetics. And he was saying like, he said to me, like, are you telling me that I should doubt? And I was like, well, no, I'm not telling you should doubt. I think you're probably full of doubt. Why else would you have a show four days a week about certainty? <laughs> you know, there's something <laughs> about that <laughs> that strikes me that that maybe there is, there is bubbling within you and unknowing. Um, in fact, my first book uh, was a wager that within evangelical Christianity, unknowing was rife. It just wasn't being signified. It wasn't, it was there, but it, you know, it was kind of being repressed and coming out in things like apologetic certainty. And, um, and the desire was simply to write a book that would maybe help to people not to doubt, but to realize they already are full of doubt and unknowing they're already immersed in it it's already there and one simply has to in some way countersign it or come mm. to give it some space mm. 
I think uh, I think of uh, this week on uh, Wednesday morning. I went to a funeral of a father of a friend. Um, it was a very lovely service, actually. Um, it was a Catholic service, um, and, and therefore there was a lot of of otherworldly reward kind of talk. You know, he's in heaven now, that sort of thing, um, and. Um, and it made me think about this question you're asking now about how how does one have is it possible to have a, a religious ceremony a kind of liturgical communion of 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 people drawn together and devoted at the for for a time to the same kind of considerations and questions and so on and, and i wondered about uh what it would be like if if the emphasis for the funeral wasn't simply on reassuring ourselves that he's gone to some other place and he's he's better off there or he's he's he's, he's with god or whatever rather than this emphasis on the location of the other life um where he now abides uh and we can be happy for him because he's now there and is recognized and, and valued and 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 sheltered and so on and so forth. I thought, what if what it would it be like to have a a funeral where you dedicate yourself not just to talking about what you did know about this person, but you 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 anticipate coming to know them now in a new way in their death, in their absence. I know. Uh, and my parents both died after my son. So I had, if I can put it this way, it's rather horrifying, but to put it this way, I had the advantage of having passed through my son's death when my parents both died about uh, six years apart, five years or so, so apart. And I was therefore better prepared for the way in which my mother and my father over the last years um, in about eight years, I think, since my father died, and about 12 since my mother died. I have realized how, and realized with kind of rewarding richness, that there were many things I didn't know about them. And these people I knew better than anyone. But I, they were in, in their own way not an open book to me. I, there were so many things I didn't know. And, and I found myself not just rethinking my parents, but finding myself in a new relationship with them as though in death, they were giving me something and changing also my whole relation to them, which I, I found surprising. But now that I think about it more, uh, I think I would ask myself anyway, whether death of a loved one always gives us this uh, opening, this possibility of, of reacquainting yourself with someone, even someone you knew as well as your parents, or a spouse, or a child, a, a sibling. Um, I wonder if death, precisely because it closes the book and says, no more clear answers, you have to live with with the unknowns. Yeah. If that could be a really positive, nourishing 
um, provoking and 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 growth producing relationship. Yeah, I mean, this is this is how I understand Eucharist, when, you know, which is a meal around the death of God, right? So the ultimate death, the loss of God, the death of the absolute, and and it's a meal in remembrance. So, so for me, symbolically, you know, if if I was to create a community that gave answers, you know, that that you know, we'd all get something out of that to some extent, but but would it be more healing to have a community in which we bear witness to loss to unknowing to death we bear witness to each other in that uh, we have rituals of remembrance like a meal mm. and is, is that actually more healing than being given an answer so even at a funeral yeah, yeah like the, is the hug and the i see you and this must be terrible is that and i i think that is the more healing thing than the person is in heaven or whatever and well the answer for me is like a bit of candy it does make you feel good when someone can, and maybe we need to do it sometimes whenever you've just broken up with someone and they're going like was the other person an asshole and I was innocent go yeah like do you want the truth well not really okay yeah you're right <laughs> um, and then three three months down the line you can say well it's a bit more complicated than that and and you know, I, I'm just there through the difficulty. I want to be there through the pain. You know, whenever you're, whenever you're ready to to open up to that, um, I'll be there, and that's that's for me more healing. And I think you can do a funeral like that. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I even did a. I've only ever done one wedding in my life. I was asked to do a wedding, and it's literally the only only once in my life. I was a couple of friends and. And I told them like I shouldn't do it. And I like, genuinely said, You don't want me to do it. And he was like, No, no, we want you to do it. And I and I said, like, I, I, I want to, I'll probably talk about how stupid it is to get married, right? And, and <laughs> it's probably gonna go wrong. Like, do you want me to do that? And he was they were like, Yes. So I did I did it. I was very nervous, but I kind of started and I told them the stats. I said, listen, the chances are. You might get divorced. And if you don't get divorced, you may end up sleeping in separate rooms. And I said, in fact, maybe imagine I came back from the future and I have a video of the moment that you two of you break up in it's 10 years time. And I have it and I'm going to show you the video and you've, you're watching the actual point when it all goes wrong. And I said, but here's the reason why I'm telling you this, because if you can look in each other's eyes and still say, hell yeah, we're going to do this, then I've got a feeling that's going to be a good, you know, yeah. but for me and I, and the reason for, and they were good, thankfully, okay, but I was going like, but like by, it doesn't weaken the marriage, actually the unknowing, the uncertainty, yeah. all of that actually makes it all the more romantic. Mm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, and there's a lovely, um, a lovely sort of model for this in, Freud's theory of sublimation, where Freud wants to say that that the work of art always has this sublime dimension, something extra. Uh, and Lacan, I think, in in this makes one of the most valuable rereadings of Freud, where sublimation, that extra that we experience in the beautiful that that extra 
something or other that's indefinable that lifts something from merely being pretty into the into the domain of something that really is almost terrifyingly moving and and lovely beautiful what that is lacan says is precisely a relationship to the unknown something we can't speak and don't know how to image so that when we look at something like the mona lisa which is of course a famously enigmatic face we're drawn first to this woman and her eyes her eyes on us the viewer but the really sublime part the part that really moves it from just a pretty face to something really jaw-droppingly beautiful is we suddenly realize we don't know what that look those eyes mean what are they seeing we don't know this is this is a, a picture of an enigma and that dimension of what we don't know turns out to be the most valuable and the most beautiful yes. dimension of the art object and that strikes me that this is a there's a, a very very profound lesson in this theory of sublimation as as that extra that we don't know how to explain the extra that we cannot categorize and conceptualize it's just pure extra yes and you um like we we talked about it a little bit but you've talked about the um there's the familiar in the other person and then but and that's that's very enjoyable and that's very nice but it's the the uncanny dimension of the other that that is both terrifying and alluring and, and Lacan uses the example of the praying mantis imagining being in front of a giant praying mantis and you're wearing a mask you don't know if you're wearing a male praying mantis mask whether she's going to consume you or kind of let you go um and I often think it's whenever I hug somebody I sometimes have this thought in my head uh are they like as soon as you're hugging them you can't see their face or they just like have a really cold look on their expression, you know, like in a movie where two people embrace and the camera shows one of them just opens their eyes and looks incredibly cold and uncanny and unfamiliar. And it's kind of terrifying. But uh, is that that the other, there's something terrifying in the other that's alluring and destructive. And in that marriage speech, it's kind of going like there's something profoundly dangerous. And there's something dangerous person that you're looking in the eyes right now. It might be the death yeah. of you. <laughs> it might be the death of you. And that's probably what brings this marriage from something romantic into the realm of something sublime, because yep. you experience that danger and you and you're willing to enjoy that danger and uh, somehow say yes to it. Yeah, exactly. And of course, it's all the more. You didn't mention, although I, I know that you uh, very well know this, that that reference to the praying mantis is Lacan comparing one's own mother to this horrifying, you know, uh, monstrous apparition of the of the of the carnivorous insect, uh, and and it's absolutely right that that it is it is perfectly possible. In fact, it's right around the corner if one's open to it that even someone like one's mother, the person about whom we might most want to say, I know her, I know her deeply, I know her intimately, how could I not? Um, 
Of course, Lacan wants to emphasize, and I think this is profoundly correct, even in the person we know most intimately, most deeply, our, our parent, our spouse, our, our best friend, at some level, we don't know them. And we need to pay attention to that, take care of it, cultivate it even, treasure and continue to kind of reopen ourselves to what we don't know in the precious other. Yeah. Because it's by, by imagining and making space for that, that we actually make space for a bigger space for them in our lives. Um, they can have a bigger impact on us, that we have our relationship with them that is richer and deeper because we make space for this. And, and that the telling thing, of course, is that if you... I maybe mentioned this last time. It's one of my favorite little little pictures on on this topic. You know, you're really in trouble when 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 you and your partner are constantly saying to one another, "Oh God, it's what you always say. You're so predictable. Why don't you just try anything new? You're just the same old broken record." You know, this is the counseling the the couple's counselor here's here's this stuff and they 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 think oh boy this couple is really far gone yeah what really keeps the relationship alive what really fertilizes love is is precisely this making room in in the other for what i do not know that is really love itself you could say and this is the horrible thing this is why no one should do it because it's not an easy life. Like to, to try to remain sensitive to that dimension of the other is gonna open up a world of pain, right? It's like, I wish that we were, you know, we were talking about a way to be, be happier, be healthier, a way to kind of like get through life better or whatever, but this is not offering that. It's not even saying, well, if I do that, will I be happier? Well, no, like the, there's a real courage to having to continually choose to try to be open to this dimension of the other yeah. you're yeah. constantly opening yourself up to 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 difficulty and pain and 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 it's almost like maybe to be alive is to try to and even if you choose for the last 10 years to do it and you don't do it now like you're not doing it now like something about this message is how do we while we're alive for the rest of the years that I have on this planet earth, how can I try to remain open to the other and to the other yeah. that I do not, do not like who seems toxic to me, who seems other than me. Um, and maybe I did it when I was 20, but can I do it when I'm 40, when I'm turning 50 next year? This yeah. is not easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But once again, this is the, the Rollins genius for the, the right question and the right comment. What, exactly when you um, ask yourself, how can I stay open to this question mark in the other, this kind of um, opacity in the other? How can I kind of keep this discipline of, 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 of positioning myself in front of this giant question mark that's looking across the table at me? The thing to remember, I think, is that not only do you honor them, and make a space for them to truly share themselves with you by reminding yourself, you don't know all about them. In fact, the crucial things are mostly hidden and opaque. 
But the really important thing to remember is that what the other has to give us in the dimension of what we do not know in them is a, a contact with what we do not know in ourselves. It's not just an abstraction about, you know, exploring the terra incognita, you know, the, 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 the dark continent of the other, as if we're, we're an explorer in Africa. On the contrary, what's really at stake is, is opening up yourself to what you don't know in your own soul. Uh, so that this is the the way in which love really, I think, most authentically operates is that a couple find an opening in the other that allows them to realize something new about themselves, something they'd never really known before. Um, I often think about this, uh, and when when I think of it in political terms, I think of it in terms of the peace process in Northern Ireland. Uh, so in 1998, we signed the Good Friday Agreement, and it was after a 30-year conflict. Uh, and basically, everybody got into a room, uh, different uh, paramilitary groups, different political bodies, um, kind of uh, committed to conflict over war. Um, there's a Irish comedian Dylan Moran, but he talked about, you know, war is the inability to have conflict because in war, you just want to kill the other person. So conflict is in a sense I where I have to open myself up to you rather than kill you. And so in the Good Friday Agreement, we all, uh, and this is where I kind of make a distinction between progressivism and apocalypticism, because I think of often progressivism is you kind of know the future and you know where it's going and if someone disagrees with you maybe you can love them in a patronizing way but you kind of know where everything's going the arc of history but in apocalypticism you don't know you don't know where the world's going you don't know what's going to happen next and in the good friday agreement everyone had to lay aside the future that they knew and mm, enter into yeah. a conflict not knowing where it was going to go, what was going to happen. And the Good Friday Agreement was an apocalyptic event that led to, I think, one of the most successful peace process, processes in the modern world. But it was an apocalyptic event in which people had to open themselves up. And it wasn't some kind of lovey-dovey, naive, oh, let's all love each other. Not at all. It was a lot of anger, legitimate anger, legitimate hatred. But it was like, I am going to sit uh, in front of the other and I am not knowing where this is going to go and we will have conflict together and see what erupts out of that. Mm. Um, I think of it as well in terms of um, sometimes a couple who maybe go to marriage therapy uh, is that you don't know whether they'll stay together or whether they'll break up but you know that it's not going to stay the same. Once they're able to put everything out and open up and engage in that conflict and then the one thing is even if they stay together they're going to break up with the type of relationship they had and mm -hmm. maybe they'll break up and go with somebody else but something radical will change and so there's something about this message of being open to this dimension of unknowing and the other that is also opens up novelty and possibility and opens up kind of new forms of life there's something, yeah, there's something political about this, you know, mm -hmm. which yep. is a lot to get into. In fact, I want to get definitely to some people's questions. One thing I did want to say, Bob, is that what is so tragic about 
things like your book uh, and what you've given is that it comes from uh, deep suffering. And it's very sad that sometimes that that in order to, to have this gift that is helpful for so many other people, you have had to go through what you've had to go through. And so it is a gift that has been um, it has been given that has extracted an awful lot of suffering. Um, I remember Kierkegaard said, what is a poet? A poet is someone who screams and cries in agony, but whose lips are so formed that when they cry out, beautiful music is formed. And so when we say to the poet, sing to us again, we are saying, may new disasters befall you. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I'm just very aware of that. Like, I, uh, you know, I absolutely love uh, the two books that you've brought out. And that's why we've done multiple conversations and we're doing a book study at the moment. Um, but I do want to lose the reality that those have come out of a place of profound um, suffering. Yeah, I, the only thing I would add to that, aside from saying that's sweet of you to say that, but I, I think that, and Kierkegaard is exactly the right reference for this. So Kierkegaard's notion of despair um, in, in, the, in a very short text that I know you know, but I'd recommend it for anybody who doesn't, the, the, the sickness unto death, it's called. Very, very provocative and mysterious, but the core idea is just lovely, which is that he says that the true, the true nature of despair is not to know that it is in despair. In other words, that I, what I'm trying to say is that, yes, it's quite true that my son's death triggered in me a, a whole, what I could call, if we give the word sufficient weight, a whole education about life, about myself, about love, about loss. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful, um, impossibly grateful, because he isn't here to thank, but I, I feel like I owe him a kind of debt of, of, of gratitude for opening my own life. But this is true for all of us, I think. Whether your son kills himself in some really extravagantly and explosively awful way, the same thing happens in some other form which may not be as spectacular, but it's just as soul-wrenching. I think we all face this. And the, and the trick, to go back to Kierkegaard, is to, is to not try to avoid and, and evade this despair, but to, um, to dwell with it, to accept it in and, 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 and feel it, for, and, and including what you don't understand about it. Um, this is, I would say, not just the, the father who loses a son, but this is, this is life. And th this is, um, and this is the challenge for me that I, to anybody who's watching this, especially if you're interested in community work or church work, is how is it possible to create the space to dwell in, in that unknowing and in that lack and that pain and avoid the temptation to create a space that gives the answer um how do we create a space that gives space um and that's that's the work that you know we're trying to do and i'm trying to do with power theology uh now let us go to some questions thank you everybody for um sticking with me in my technological difficulties so we've got some people did come across um let's see Oh, it's interesting. Yes. Question um, from Brian. If meaning making 
and the desire to know um, and have certainty are part of the reasons for our evolutionary thriving and survival. What type of humanity do you imagine we can attain if we develop to be more embracing of unknowing and uncertainty? I, I really like that by the way, because like, yeah, you're, we do, we desire meaning, we desire knowledge, we do desire certainty. And it probably has some very useful functions. So yes, but but what, yeah, so his, his question then is what type of humanity do you imagine we can attain if we develop to be more embracing of unknowing and uncertainty? Yeah, well, um, to give a short answer to a very big question, um, I wouldn't have given this answer uh, 20 years ago, but now I feel like um, our knowledge particularly in the form of scientific and technological uh, knowledge and power, this is not going to be our undoing. Uh, it seems to me that our greatest challenge is our openness to unknowing and our capacity to share it with each other and even to, to offer ourselves in relationship very, very sensitive to what we do not know about the other and about ourselves. You know, I was I was aware as everybody probably has heard about this Chinese spy balloon that was shot down yesterday by the American armed forces. And I thought to myself, boy, you know, spying the intrusive effort to come to know the other's secrets. Uh, spying is exactly if it's necessary, if it's historically almost uh, universal um, between nations, it strikes me it's what we really need to resist. We need to get to a table where we share with one another what we're afraid of and what we don't know about the other and about our own futures. It seems to me as the world shrinks and the dangers at range in the world become more and more daunting of climate change above all, but a lot of other things too. We need more than ever to, to take a healthy step back from our knowing, not to say that our knowledge is something unequivocally bad, it's not. But we need to, It's I believe, we need to really embrace the humility of not knowing of our own ignorance particularly about others and about ourselves, both. It seems to me our greatest challenge is going to be exactly embracing the challenge of our own unknowing. There's a, that's one of the gifts. Uh, I did Lacanian psychoanalysis and um, I, I was reading somebody today who was slagging off psychoanalysis and Lacanian psychoanalysis because it's the the analysis of the brick wall. This person said, and they were like, because the analyst didn't say anything, <laughs> and um, and I go like, well, I know that. So I spent thousands of dollars and they didn't say anything. And I mean, it's very twee to say, but it is actually quite true. Is they there's one of the few places where they give the gift of silence. <laughs> they like John Cage's four thirty three you know, famous composition, which if anybody wants to go and listen to it, I'm sure some of you know, but um, uh, which just kind of like is a gift of of silence. And um, there's kind of interesting ways, like that's not the same as just being quiet. 
like so 433 there's we're always which if anybody knows four minutes 33 seconds of silence but you know we might have been silent for four minutes 33 seconds many times but when it's done as a composition the silence yeah. becomes pregnant it becomes something else and the same thing you might sit and not talk with somebody for an hour but whenever your analyst is actively not talking um it's, it's a it's a really interesting gift of of unknowing that you're receiving <laughs> yeah exactly um i've got oh, a couple more questions here i can ask a practical one i don't know if this will be in your wheelhouse or not um uh, is teaching about the subject of unknowing to the youth a way for them to cope with and navigate their existence and relationship to the void and if yes what does that look like so i think that's a yeah practical question like whenever you're young i guess teenagers or even younger children can you can you teach this is it healthy is it good is it um important uh i won't claim to be anything of an expert about this i'm um i'm asking myself some of those questions with students um you know, in the classes that I'm currently teaching um, with the spring semester, this is an open question. I, I was just teaching uh, a seminar on the modern world, a seminar on uh, a couple of sessions on Hegel, Hegel's interpretation of the, of, of the philosophy of history. Uh, and wow, I, I literally going into class on Tuesday, I'm going to have to see how bad it is. <laughs> and I was about to see what they thought of the last class that I tried to, to do, which was a deep dive into the paradoxes of Hegel's dialectic. Um, so I don't claim to have any expertise about this, but I do think that no matter what the age level, um, that this is a really rich vein, like vein in the sense of the gold vein in the mine. Um, this is a rich vein that that pays back the effort to try to follow it and dig down into it. That um, whether it's with first year students um, or with seniors or grad students um, or people, I have a, a gentleman in my class who's auditing it. He's the, the husband with a PhD and an MBA. He's retired, but he's doing what I think every retired person should do is go back and take a college class in something interesting. But he, we have a variety of levels of, of, of people in the class, but I think it's essential that, that, that one way or another that we really frame our efforts at knowing and learning in a class with some of this awareness of, of our relationship to what we don't know. Um, not always, there's no recipe for it, I think, but um, I'm, so far I'm amazed at how even first-year students appreciate it, like it opens a door to them that a class that's all about the material, the class material, you know, is, can be so deadly. Um, that opening the questions in an authentic way, in a kind of honest way, I my experience with it is it's almost always successful, if not in ways that I immediately totally understand. 
I just get the sense that students can handle an amazing amount of that and respond really well to it. It seems like, um, you know, there's kind of, a, I think it was Heidegger said, people think students are there to learn and teachers are there to teach. But, you know, actually the students know everything already. It's the teachers who don't. <laughs> and what the teacher wants to get across is what, yeah. <laughs> what they don't know. And um, I do see that, like, you start with ignorance. And then sometimes then you you kind of then maybe at a certain point think you know things. When I was 18, I thought I knew everything. And then there's learned unknowing. There's like the, the unknowing that comes not from the ignorance of not reading and not thinking and not reflecting, but the not knowing that that is actually you know, really thought through. That's part of a contemplative life and also an intellectual life and a life well lived and a life in which you attempt to be sensitive to the other, that these these enrich a type of learned unknowing. Um, I, I tend to think, I mean, I don't, I've never tested that. I hate to do this with philosophy professor because um, these are my, you know, thoughts that are probably just for me, but I, uh, I kind of go like one of the main differences between analytic and continental philosophy for me comes down to continental philosophy is really interested in nothing. Um, and analytic philosophy tends to not, to think that nothing is nothing. You know, Bertrand Russell, I think famously kind of said, like Hegel's a category mistakes, like nothing's nothing, don't worry about nothing. Continental philosophers spend all their time worrying about nothing. <laughs> and, um, uh, but a lot of continental philosophy, I think is really around this question of like, this. there's a dimension to life that is not reducible to material, to, to sameness. There is a, something radically otherness about yeah. existence. And we need to do justice to to that. Mm. Uh, Gotta do a couple more questions. Courtney asked a, a really difficult one, a powerful one here, but she said, "My family is grieving the loss of both my in-laws uh, from 2021. Uh, in your experience, uh, what are the most helpful responses to your grief that you've received from others?" There's two parts to it. That's the first part. So, yeah, has there been anything helpful responses to your grief that you received from others? I have to make a confession, I think, on that question, um, which is that I, um, a real confession, like I, I, of a weakness of my own, I think I, I retreated into the writing of that text, which became this memoir, um, 16 years after the fact gets published. I, I think that I, I didn't even want to go to grief groups, you know, um, um, and I could have, and, and I look back on it and think to myself, I, I wish I did. Um, I think it was, a, I don't know, I suppose you could even call it maybe a sin of pride. I mean, I think I was not willing to share my own emotional wreckage, um, with with other people and i think that was probably a impoverished me uh i think i would have done better to, to have done that um um i think it was a defense even um of mine to not allow the consolation of others it was kind of like uh i don't even want to be consoled uh, I want to, if this is going to kill me, then good. <laughs> um, 
So that was like my own weakness, I think, not to be more open to. Um... I will say, however, uh, that when I went to my son's funeral, uh, an earlier version of the text actually contained the eulogy that I gave at the funeral. And I uh, and described it, the funeral more than I did in the published version. But I, I must say, I. I was very cynical going into it. I thought, you know, I hate funerals that they're also kind of, you know, standard, you know, the usual stuff gets said. And I was, I was somewhat cynical about it going into it, I have to say. But when the room filled with all of the people who knew Oliver and um, knew us, I, I was absolutely overcome with gratitude and with just a sense of being gifted something really precious I, I was just um in tears over it um i'm tearing up to remember it um and at the end of the service we had everybody come up oliver's ashes were on a little in a little urn on a big long table and we had all these little tea candles and people could come up and light one and um there were 250 candles on this table at the end of this and it was among the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. And I feel like it was a incredible gift um, to me, despite my resistance <laughs> to receiving something like that. So I, I, it's a rather lame answer to your question, but uh, I think that being open to that kind of solace from other people is itself a strength, um, but it's certainly a potential strengthening thing to receive it yeah i'm i'm like you my brother's very like my, my brother if he gets sick he'll just close the door you know and then and a week later if he's better come back out but keeps it and i i'm very like that i remember when my dad passed away exactly the same thing happened but uh, and it didn't i didn't feel like i knew it was going to happen you know it wasn't a surprise uh funerals aren't something that you know I, I wasn't really looking forward to it. I didn't. I, I I didn't think I'd be that emotional. But then when I saw my friends, I didn't even know we were going to show up. Uh, some of my friends showed up in the back, and I was profoundly moved, thinking that I would not be moved at all just by them being there and somehow just giving me the nod and giving me a handshake at the back. It was very moving, and um, because like, oh yeah, that. that don't even know, know quite know why that was so moving, but yeah, it was. Just one more little little footnote to this. I, I I think that one of the reasons why this whole this whole revelation for me of of the meaning, the existential meaning of unknowing, um, I think was particularly powerful for me because I I think my privileged mode of defense in my life by defense i mean my coping mechanism my kind of go-to safety pose consisted precisely in trying to know what's going on i became a philosophy professor for a very good reason i was trying to kind of get the the total theoretical view where where the greek word theoria means uh, the scene from a high place as though you're looking from a mountaintop over the plains beneath you and it's that's a control thing i think in me and yeah. 
And embracing this unknowing was a kind of embracing a come a kind of humility. And I would say that's when Oliver first died, I was I was still very much in that refusal to take a humble position and, and just admit, I don't know what happened and whatever you can say that's helpful, I'd appreciate. I, I don't think I was willing to do that. Um, I am, I thank goodness, I think I'm a lot more humble um, today than I was then. His, again, his gift to me. The second part of the question is just, um, and how have others helped or hindered your embracing of this radical unknowing in regard to the whys of your loss? So I'm not, I I don't know, I, I, I kind of get like, so how have others helped or hindered your embrace of this radical unknowing? Oh yes, in regard to, I guess, the whys, the explanations of your loss, does that? Because- Whys, uh, you mean the question why? Question why, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not totally yes. sure what's being asked, but, yeah. um, it's a really annoying. They've got 180 characters to write a question. So I know how hard is that to yeah. write the question. So, um, but, but the first half, how have others helped or hindered your embrace of this radical unknowing? I mean, maybe, um, but I would suppose in relation to the loss of your son, but in general, like what's helped or hindered? Well, let me let me share something that 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 I've thought a lot about. Um, the The only uh, real book review of the memoir was of one paragraph review by an outfit called Publishers Weekly. Um, you can find it online. You can just go to Blown Away Publishers Weekly, and it was it was painful to me uh, because this first and only review a lot of nice things have been said about the book in other ways but by other people but this one reviewer uh who i don't know the 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 reviews and publishers weekly are anonymous this one viewer was quite critical of the book and said it was self-indulgent said it was bewildering and baffling and that it really it was as if they they were kind of i don't know if offended is the right word but they found the book to be an exercise in somehow my sort of self-preoccupation or kind of a, um, anyway, I, I've wondered a lot about that little review, that critical review. Um, and I guess I feel like I'm tempted, let's put it this way. I haven't concluded this, but I'm tempted to say that they, these, this, this, this reviewer felt like I was kind of, making too selfish a kind of dilemma out of the whole thing instead of simply adopting a humble position of of just plain old grief i was wriggling trying to understand it going into analysis trying to go through all these rake through all these memories and see if there wasn't some kind of pattern or something as if i wasn't just kind of being reverent and 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 respectful of my son in his death and so on and so forth. I, I'm not sure, but my, my point is this, that um, I, I ended up going down the path of writing this memoir very, very humbled by it. And I'm extraordinarily grateful for that. I think the book 
can sound like the opposite of humility, like it, like it is self-indulgent. And I suppose in a way it is. Um, when we're in pain, particularly with mourning, we're almost unavoidably self-indulgent. Grief is self-indulgent. Um, and I think there's a danger. This is, I guess, a reply I might I might make to this little this little review. If you if you try to sort of close over yourself and protect yourself from being too wounded and too obsessed and too self-absorbed and too self-indulgent, you risk, it seems to me, not really getting the full impact of your loss. And that's an important thing. Um, just uh, stealing yourself in the face of the pain and just kind of toughing it out and, you know, putting on a good face. I don't believe that's the most helpful way to greet these kinds of losses. And um, yeah, and it becomes a gift to other people. That's the point of both yeah. the books that you've written is that and why we're doing this is because you're, and I like that Kierkegaard quote about, you know, you're, it's agony, but your, your pain is formed in such a way that you sublimate that in a way that is a gift to, to other people. Um, yeah. uh, I'll do a couple more questions and then because I'm aware of taking a lot of your time, but there's lots of and loads of really nice comments as well. Thank you, everybody who's commenting. It's great to see uh, you're getting so much out of it. Um, CH says, Eastern religions, in my opinion, have more explicitly named religion as having to deal with the unknown. Does Richard books, uh, does Richard's book discuss Eastern philosophies like Buddhism, Zen, Indian mysticism, etc.? Um, or do you want to make a comment about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I my my discussions are 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 even for me painfully brief. Um, um my editor was <laughs> I cut so much stuff to <laughs> to please the editor. Uh uh, but particularly the um the discussions of of Hinduism and and Buddhism uh, really explore this. Buddhism, maybe particularly, there's a section on Zen Buddhism that I I really like a lot because because it's largely based on a book that I really like a lot um, um, by um, uh, Nishitani is his name um, Keiji Nishitani. The name of the book is Religion and Nothingness. It's an extraordinary book about the centrality of nothingness and 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 the the emptiness of of the nothing for Zen um, and the Zen understanding of of reality and of of spirituality. So I uh, I certainly made my stab at that at trying to talk about some of those Asian traditions, which I have enormous respect for, um, precisely because they are so much more frequently willing, it seems to me, maybe especially Buddhism, to leave the opening upon the unknown so much more graciously and so much more uh, evocatively than many Western uh, religious sects in the Judeo-Christian tradition are willing to do. So that was, for me, it was both a pleasure to learn about it and, and write about it. But yes, I'm hoping that there's enough in there to at least give the reader um, some real sense of the richness of that, of those Asian traditions. 
I'm very keen to see all the stuff that didn't get in the book. I hope you'll put it into another book. Todd did this with his Hegel book. There was a pile he had to leave out. And I'm just sitting there going, I want the stuff that's left out. <laughs> so I know you had to leave a lot of stuff out. I'm like, I want, I want to see that stuff. You know, you yeah. should just put it in a PDF and give it to people. And I'm sure people would love to see that. Actually, I I may do some of that. I'm, if I can't find a, an actual print version of print, um, you know, um, um, option. Uh, I may, I, I, I'm trying to get a website up and running somehow, which for me is really a leap because I'm basically a sort of an 18th century person um, writing in the 21st century. But um, yeah, uh, one way or another, I will try to get some of that stuff out. Well, there's a final quote uh, Courtney put up, which I like. Uh, Doing nothing often leads to the very best of something. That's Winnie the Pooh. Um, I'm a big fan of Winnie the Pooh. Uh, I, I still remember the opening line of the book, which is, here comes Winnie the Pooh coming downstairs, bump, bump, bump on the back of his head behind Christopher Robin. It is as far <laughs> as he knows, the only way of coming downstairs. But he wonders if perhaps there is a better way, if only he could stop bumping long enough to think of it. And uh, I think we're all bumping our heads through life and wondering, is there a different way of doing it? And yes, taking some space is good. Um, so wonderful. Thank you so much to everybody who's checked in and was watching this. I'm going to edit it, put it up. Uh, Richard, thank you so much uh, for being part of the conversation. Uh, I want to have many more of these conversations with you. And um, um, I'm very excited about introducing people who know my work to your work. So that's a very exciting thing for me. Well, as you know very well, Peter, uh, the intersection between our our interests and 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 questions and so on i'm very acutely and very gratefully aware of those and so it's been terrific for me too um and uh, whenever else whenever else you have time for some wandering uh wandering wanderer um i'm i'm, I'm always available <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. I, I want to get you guys out to belfast again so that's we'll figure out some way to to coax you back to to here well, we both time. fell in love with northern ireland and belfast in particular so that's not a problem <laughs> All right. Well, listen, thanks, everybody. Goodbye. Uh...